0: Thank you Emma. Several years ago we purchased a different car, a Nissan Altima. We don't remember ever seeing one until we bought it. And it wasn't in our consciousness because it was, just wasn't in our, in our life. But we began to, began to notice them everywhere. They're just Everywhere. But we didn't know that until we actually saw one ourselves and lived with it and drove it and so on. So I I think of the Lenten theme in the same way. I experience it in the same way. I've been noticing examples, personal examples and things I see in this life that relate to upside down and inside out. And one such experience recently was my trip to Kansas to help our son Andrew with the Heston College Women's Softball Team. So here's how it began. Friday morning, March 6th, 6, 6 degrees above zero, 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, flying to Wichita. We got there at 1 o'clock, now it's Central Standard Time. That's pretty easy to follow. So that's March 6th on Friday. By the way, 55 degrees and sunny. <laughs> on Saturday, March 7th, we travel in two vans reaching New Mexico now mountain standard time and we reached the border and so there we are and by sunday our sense of timing is really starting to play games with our sense of what's real and i'll explain for two reasons saturday night daylight savings time yeah Normally, it's Mountain Standard Time in Arizona, but they don't observe Daylight Savings Time. So, what is usually Mountain Standard Time in Arizona now is actually, they are actually on Pacific Standard Time. And so, what is usually two hours difference to Pennsylvania is now three hours difference. And those three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we never got back to our residence until about nine o'clock. So, I cannot call Loretta at nine o'clock because it's midnight. And she would not be a happy camper to get these phone calls at midnight. So for me, this experience was just kind of upside down and inside out in terms of time. John's Gospel invites us to see these realities that are often expressed in this upside down, outside, yeah, upside down, inside out kind of focus. As Dirk was reading, we note that this gospel, this, this chapter 12, is about people who really want to see Jesus for various reasons. It shows people both seeing Jesus for who he is and yearning to see him, hoping to see him. The disenchanted leaders in, in chapter 11, they are tired of seeing Jesus and they see him as a sense as a threat to their sense of security. And they, prophetically, whether they know it or not, they say, it's better for one man to die than the whole nation to be destroyed. And what they mean is, by the Romans, if there's some kind of uprising, the Romans come in, they don't care what's happening. They'll just make sure everything's in order, and that means destruction. And so when Jesus enters Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, people swarm into the city to see him. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. People are amazed by that and they've got to see Jesus and Lazarus. And the religious leaders conclude that the whole world, the whole world is just following after Jesus. And indeed, they are. Greeks are not of the inside world, these Jewish faith people. They are the outside outside people. So evidently, not everybody in Palm Sunday actually got to see Jesus. So they they go to Philip. Philip is Greek. Andrew is a Greek name. So they go to their closest connections and they they say, we want to see Jesus. And so you know the story. Philip goes to Andrew and they go together to see Jesus. And they tell Jesus that, hey, there's some people from the Greek Greek, uh, outsiders who want to see you. Now, I don't know how you take that, but as I read about Jesus in the New Testament, I would think, and maybe Peter, uh, maybe Andrew and Philip thought the same, that surely Jesus would want to uh, spend some time with these Greeks because he's always spending time with outside people, sometimes much to the disciples' chadrin and dismay. But no, he doesn't. He doesn't give any indication that he's ever going to talk with them. He simply says, the hour has come. Now, what hour is he talking about? Maybe from Philip and Andrew's point of view, maybe it's the hour that is revealed in Acts 1, the hour when Jesus is finally going to take over and be the king that some people want him to be of of Palestine, of of the Israel, Israel nation. But Jesus goes on to define what hour he's talking about by, again, telling a story he names the coming hour as like a seed that is useless and the outer coat has to die. It's planted in the ground, a coat falls off, and if it dies, it'll bear a lot of fruit, implying that if it doesn't die, nothing, no growth, no fruit. The people around Jesus, I imagine, can hardly, can hardly understand what Jesus is getting at with this talk of being lifted up and losing life to gain life. And that's where Jeremiah's words begin to help us a bit a whole millennium earlier, or nearly a millennium earlier. Jeremiah sees a need to talk about the old covenant and a new covenant that is coming. He, needs to, he sees a need to talk about God in new language. I mean, we, we notice that too. Sometimes the language we use seems to be outdated 50 years ago, and, we have different Bible translations that come along in an attempt to give some fresh language. And that's one reason I like the, the two books that we have in our racks. They seem to have songs that are words that we use in everyday language. So fresh language is what Jeremiah is about. Jeremiah sees a need to talk about a relationship with God that goes beyond an outward checklist of obedience to an inner motivation to relate to God. The new covenant, as one of the commentators writes, picks up after the old, common, the old covenant, looking back to Moses and the Ten Commandments. The old has certainly been broken by people and still are, still is, Jeremiah says. But it needs fresh understanding. What was written on stone, of course, is broken but now is intended to be known in our hearts. Newness, Martin's writes in the Believer's Commentary, is actually more a newness of emphasis because Martin's also sees some of this heart language in the Ten Commandments and in some of the old law language as we read it in the Old Testament. But the new is like the old in that it has a kind of protection role like the seed, like the seed coating, the seed covering, kind of a protective kind of role in our lives. And the new and the old are like that. But the new is new. The new covenant is new in that the experience of God will be direct and unmediated. One doesn't have to rely on your past to explain everything to you. you we, can, we can figure out, we can go directly, of course. This is not a new thought to us. But we don't need the priest to explain everything to us. We are to be active participants with our God relationship. And that forgiveness is the cornerstone of all of this new covenant. So it's new in that the old has collapsed. It's addressed to people without a covenant that's working. It's new in that, we, as we now understand it, it's been fulfilled in a relationship, what we would say, with Jesus. So Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The old covenant, Jeremiah says, if not dead, at least takes a back seat. And we recall Jesus' words for that seed to grow that seed coat must first die. That raises questions for us, for me. What is it for me that has to die in order to produce fruit? What is it for you? Hannah Whittell Smith has written so well that the new covenant transforms service from duty to an inner desire. Which, of course, an outward expression. And the New Covenant transforms service from duty to a desire. So what has to die, as I'm thinking through this process, is, is that reliance on the external things to motivate me, to motivate us. What has to die in us is a kind of a checklist faith that relies on going down the list, checking off the list of rules and done that got that finished, they'll have to go back there, just go down the list, and we got it all checked off, the externals, and as we complete their demands, then we expect that we're finished with that stuff. We'll always feel close to God spiritually, certain of our faith, and able to see Jesus because of our efforts. Well, it doesn't seem to work that way for me. I'm not quite sure about you. I'm certain you you, uh, follow that. The other experience traveling with our son in Arizona for these games has to do with this idea of interior and exterior, much the same, I think, as inside and outside, or or internal and external. Andy shared the difference with the other coach and I of external motivation to play softball, to play for the team, and internal motivation. And that became very, very clear to us as there was one player who was pretty much playing for the externals. Externals like, hey, I had a good game. I had three hits, and I had a home run, and and we lost, but I'm happy. I had a good day. External motivation. Or we won, but I had two errors, and I didn't get any hits, and I'm not very happy. One of these players really exhibited that, and not surprisingly, sat out the next game. Andy went on to share that interior motivation is what he really wants from all his players, to play for the team, regardless of what position you are assigned to play, regardless of one's own personal performance. Can you cheer for a teammate when you have a bad day? Or or when you don't have a bad day, can you, can, you, can you play not just thinking about yourself? As Buck O'Neill once said, we play for the love of the game. We don't sit and pout and we don't get what we think we deserve from our coach or from the situation of the game. The key thing that Andy shared with the staff was that this particular young lady, with that attitude... Five years from now, she might get fired from her job because of that attitude. And that said a lot to me. It reminds us that in this particular instance, Heston College softball is a lot more than just about softball. It's about a setting to help shape people for the rest of their lives. And that's what the coach's deepest desire is, is that wider picture. Desire for people to have that inner motivation to play softball, which has bigger ramifications than just softball. And so getting back to our theme, Aubrey, I think what any coach wants is to have all their players allow their seed coats to decay. Jesus is deeply troubled about his coming death. He's not especially happy about facing it. The Greeks never see Jesus in person as far as we know, but they are invited to see Jesus in his death. They are invited to, to see Jesus in the suffering and death that is to come. And they are invited to die, to live, without having it all figured out right away. I believe that what God wants for us is to die so that we may live, placing our will completely into God's hand as individuals, as a congregation, as Mennonite Church USA, and you can fill in the blanks wherever you'd like to do that. The good news is that the obedience of those with the covenant written in their hearts comes from their deepest, deepest inner selves. It's not a matter of working harder to make ourselves holy or good, as the writer of the Leader Magazine comments. Rather, it's a matter of allowing God to do a kind of a heart transplant on us and then of accepting that and over and over again as a new way of being in the world. May that be as true for you as Jesus wanted to be true for his disciples. May that be true for you as a seed that literally dies. May that be true for you as you then respond with justice and compassion. With the new covenant... We are truly living, we are truly dying to live. And when we follow Jesus with our hearts, we are dying to live. Let us pray. Gracious God, with the psalmist, we pray. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and put a new and right spirit within us. Amen.